Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where our goal is to help you find health and community through movement. I'm Molly Herford, a writer, coach, and yoga teacher. And I'm Peter Glassford, an endurance coach and kinesiologist. Every week, we're talking to athletes and experts who can help you lead your best active, adventurous life. Whether you're a gravel racer, a marathon runner, or you just got out on your first bike ride yesterday, we're here cheering you on. You can also visit us online at consummateathlete.com for coaching information and training tips, nutrition advice, yoga flows, bike skills, and more. And now, let's get into this week's episode hello hello welcome back to the consummate athlete podcast peter what's shaking oh you know we're uh, just in between world cups again this weekend so two weeks in a row we've recorded these intros between the world cup mountain bike racing yes this week was nov mesto and yeah really really exciting race it's been really cool seeing uh some the the american women just crushing it seeing the the canadians sort of shaking things out i'm gonna say uh, I, i'm i'm really indifferent i'm just happy there's racing to be honest it's that's true very yeah. good to see yeah and i mean i think today today's race I, well i guess no spoil if you don't want spoilers skip ahead like a minute here uh if you haven't watched it yet but uh it's really cool seeing katherine pendrell who we had on a couple weeks ago for our mother's day episode uh super cool seeing her kind of getting back into the mix uh, i think she was uh, 23rd today which you know she had probably like a fifth or sixth row start and like made her way back into 23rd. And I mean, you know, they're, they're living in their, their RV over in Europe now through, through July. So pretty, pretty exciting things happening and just really cool to see her. That's right. Yeah. I think all the North American women did fairly well. So that's, that's good. We'll see how the men's race goes. So Mm -hmm, we can't, mm -hmm. can't spoil that because we're between them, but onward, we're uh, back here this week with another interview. I think this is an exciting one. Yes, I'm super stoked. We have paracyclist Keely Shaw, who is also, you know, working towards an advanced degree in exercise science. So she's basically like a, a human experiment. I guess, yes. Um, yeah. So we we get into everything from you know learning a little bit about the paracycling and just you know para in general, how that sort of works out and how you know it's categorized and. You know, she she got into cycling pretty late. Um, she was in in college when someone mentioned she could pretty much do whatever para sport that she like set her mind to. So she tried a few, and cycling just really worked for her. It was something she enjoyed, something she loved. So. And I think that's uh, common. I, I don't know it a lot. I've actually learned much more about paracycling uh, as a as a discipline and the different disciplines within it uh, over the pandemic. Um, but that's often the case with paracycling is, you know, there's an injury later in life, you know, or, or not, but like someone gets, you know, through all that, you know, figures out, becomes an adult, becomes self-sufficient, you know, because they have an injury or, or, you know, just some sort of disability and then they come into the sport later. So that is actually quite common, uh, that a lot of the paracycles, I think I'm trying to remember, but there's a couple that are like forties and I think even fifties maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Well, Keely is mid-20s now, so not not quite that late in her career. Uh, but she, she started in 2018, and it's actually really, I, I'll let her tell it, but the story about like getting categorized and then going directly into world championships from that, because there's only so many places where you can get categorized for what your para category is going to be. Right. So, you know, no pressure, right? Like you, you go to the, this race, you get put in this category, and then boom, you're at the start line of Worlds. Uh, so... 
yeah, pretty, pretty crazy. Uh, and she's balancing all of that, like I said, with doing, you know, a lot of active research. Uh, her team was doing some stuff on masters and paracyclists during COVID. So sort of looking at how their lifestyles changed and we talk through that. She's also done some intriguing research about chocolate. I will also let her speak to that. Uh, okay. But suffice to say, I'm stoked on it. <laughs> All right. And that reminds me of our, our show sponsor. Uh, ongoing here is Inside Tracker. Yes. Uh, so Inside Tracker does blood, DNA, and fitness tracker testing. Um, so basically, it's you know kind of a great way to get a snapshot of what's going on inside your body. And you know that's something especially now, but really anytime is just super useful, you know, as, as a coach, that's really helpful for you to be able to see how, how different clients are doing. We've used it and, you know, gotten to kind of see what was going on behind the scenes, if you will. That's right. Yeah. Um, and it's very convenient as well. So you can check that out. It's inside tracker.com slash consummate. So inside tracker.com backslash consummate, and you get 25% off everything in the inside tracker store which is a super good deal. Like, honestly, cannot recommend it enough. And even even if you're feeling really good, I think it's super important to have a baseline for a lot of this blood work. And honestly, like, even if you, even if you have a fantastic insurance plan, sometimes it's sort of a pain to get all of these blood markers, like, requisitioned and get it done. Um, and if you're, you know, up in Canada, most of us don't have that kind of like health plan that would just automatically do that. So, right. you know, I have to go to the naturopath and like ask for a, a couple specific blood, you know, blood tests. So this is a really good way to just get a really good full spectrum. For sure. Uh, over overview. So definitely check that out inside tracker.com slash consummate. And without further ado, let's uh, let's get into this episode with Keely Shaw. Enjoy. Keely, welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm so excited to have you on. Well, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. And by here, I mean in this virtual world, but I'm seeing another human space, which is great. I know, I know. It's funny. I actually just started like really kind of forcing the video side of doing podcast recordings because I do think it actually makes things a lot better and even just as far as like the, the quality control for the listeners out there. So I'm putting myself on camera for the listeners. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, okay, so you and I have talked before, but you know, obviously, I'm not putting that into the podcast. So, um, can we go back to how you got into cycling? Give give me your your whole backstory. What led you to finding the bike? Yeah, so I pretty much played every sport that was in within a half hour radius of my hometown. So, hockey was my main sport. Ice hockey was my first true love. I also played volleyball. I played badminton. I raced motocross. I dabbled in soccer, I dabbled in basketball, um, but hockey was really where my heart was. And then when I was 15, I fell off my horse and I broke a blood vessel in my brain. So that led to complete paralysis on the left side of my body, of which I've regained most of it back. I have about 70% fun function in the left side of my body on it, depending on the day, it can be a little bit more or a little bit less. Um, but so I obviously couldn't play hockey very well anymore. <laughs> Um, and I kept playing hockey for probably almost eight or nine years after I got hurt, but I wasn't really enjoying it anymore because I was always comparing myself to the hockey player that I used to be and not this new level right. of functioning that I would have. And before I got hurt, I was, I was decently good. So I was going to tryouts for the AAA teams. I was playing the AA teams. I was dreaming of playing university hockey. My ultimate goal was to go to the Olympics to play ice hockey. 
But of course, that went down the drain pretty quickly when I could no longer roll over in bed because half of my body did not work. Um, so I, I mean, like I played hockey for a long time and I kept playing hockey and I still did a lot of weightlifting, just kind of a generally active person. And then one day I was in the gym and a fellow student came up to me and was kind of like, Hey, I heard your story and I've seen you move. I think you'd be classifiable for parasport. So I went with her to see her sports scientist and he was like, yeah, you're definitely classifiable. Pick a sport. I tried cross country skiing. And when I tried it, it was sit skiing and all of my strength is in my legs. So I was really bad and I was really cold and it was just, it was hard. And so that was a no-go for me. But at this point, I'd been kind of commuting back and forth to the university on my bike. So I was like, hey, biking sounds cool. So I had this like $200 steel frame Canadian tire bike that I was using and I would do 20, 25 kilometer rides on. I like to sit think that my power output was higher trying to drag that thing along than it is now on my nice sleek carbon bikes. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I trained, quote unquote, trained on that for about a year doing 20, 25 kilometers, which was big for me. And then after I finished my undergrad degree in 2016, I bought myself an actual carbon road bike as a graduation present to myself, started doing longer 40, 50 kilometer rides. So that would have been the summer of 2016. And then in the spring of 2017, I had my first road race, just a local provincial race. And I, I loved it kind of for the first time since I'd been hurt, I started to feel like an athlete again. And because I'd never raced bikes prior to my injury, I had nothing to compare myself to, or I should say no unrealistic expectations of myself. So I did that race and I had so much fun. I loved the atmosphere. I loved the people. I loved the physicality of it. So I went on the Canadian Paralympic um, Committee's webpage and I found every single email that I could find in the deep, dark corners of that webpage. And I emailed everybody saying, hey, I had a brain injury. I like to bike. I want to pursue this at a higher level. Where do we go? This is my favorite part of your story, by the way. <laughs> just the, like, the BCC of just like everyone you can think of yeah. on this site. So they put me in touch with the um, development coach, Recycling Canada who we exchanged a couple of emails, but we never actually talked in person. And he was like, hey, come out to Quebec. I'm doing a training camp. So I went out to Quebec to do this training camp with these people I had no idea, I had never met. Um, from there, he invited me out to nationals. I went out to nationals. And then he was. they were decided I needed to be officially classified. So in Paralympic sport, you kind of get classified based on your level of function so that you're racing against people with similar levels of function. Mm-hmm. And the first opportunity to do that was track world championships in Rio. So no pressure, no pressure at all. No pressure at all. <laughs> I never like. I think I rode the track a total of six times before I had actually gotten on the track for that race. But I ended up fifth in the world, which was kind of cool. Pretty sweet. Pretty sweet. And, um, and there, actually, it just kind of escalated, I guess. I so I did the world championships, and then I went. I did a world cup in Holland, where I got second on the road. And I was in Italy and I went to road world championships and I got fourth at worlds on the road, 2019 track world championships. I ended up second. I set a Canadian record by six seconds and got a silver medal at worlds. My yeah, last race so was many track world championships <laughs> in Ontario and I lost a bronze medal by 75 one thousandths of a second, but I'm not bitter. Not even like a little bit, not even, not even like 75th. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. I have so many directions that I want to go. Um, the, the first one is just, I think it's, it's something that everyone can kind of learn from this idea of taking, finding the new sport and figuring out like what's going to make you feel like an athlete again and not comparing, like finding something that isn't going to make you compare yourself to past you. Cause I mean, that's, everyone has a past version of them, right? Like whether it's you had a, you know, you've had kids or, you know, you, you gained a bunch of weight or you, you know, got a different job. And so, like, I think it's such a cool reminder to people you can find and then excel in a different sport than the one that you thought you were going to be great at. So I love that. I think that's super important. Um, and I actually wanted to touch on the the designations side of things. Can you explain like what that process looked like in Rio and like what sort of the different designations are? Because I think a lot of people don't totally understand like the world of parasport. Yeah, trust me, us within parasport don't understand the world yeah. of parasport. But so essentially, <laughs> in cycling, cycling has classifications for pretty well every level of impairment. You get classified first on what type of bike you ride. So we have tandem bikes with two riders for visually impaired athletes. Um, we have tricycles for people if they have uh, really poor balance. So a lot of people that I know of with tricycles um, have a brain injury that's impacted their balance or maybe right. they have really bad MS. Um, there's hand bikes, and that can be typically it's a spinal cord injury. Some of the higher level hand bikes are for people with a double amputation of their legs. And then you have um, the quote-unquote regular bikes, your two-wheeled bikes that look very similar to what the average person would ride. Mm -hmm. And then within each of those classifications, there's different numbers. So for my class, I'm a C class. I ride what would be considered a quote-unquote normal bike. We have C1 through 5. C1 would be somebody with the least amount of function, and C5 being the most amount of function. So I am a C4, and I mean that can – because – my function kind of depends on how tired I am, how stressed I am, how my nutrition is. On any given day, I could probably be a C3 or a C4, but I race with the C4s. Um, C5 would be somebody typically who has an upper body impairment, so that might be an amputation at the wrist or at the shoulder even, maybe some sort of limited mobility or strength in one of their upper extremities. That means they struggle a little bit to steer the bike. Um, C4s usually have to have at least um, a lower body impairment. So there, a lot of the girls I race against, they have an amputation below the knee on one leg. C3 is typically somebody who has either an amputation above the knee, but not as high as the hip, or they have some, um, a lot of people with cerebral palsy fall in this because they have quite severe limitations in their upper and lower body. Mm -hmm. Um, C2 would be, um, again, decreasing function even more. So that's usually somebody who has an amputation at the hip on one leg. And then they might that might be their only impairment. Or there's a guy in our team who has a degenerative nerve disease. So he has limited function in his upper and lower body. And it's severe enough to put him in C2. C1s, usually you have either multiple missing limbs or just a severe enough level of impairment. So there's a guy in our team with C1 who has this, another, the same degenerative nerve disease, but his has just progressed um, to an extent where he would be classified as a C1. Okay, got it. And you had to do this classification right before a world championships. Yeah, uh, the day before to, I raced. 
talk to me about the stress of, of that process and then getting to the start line of your first world championships. Well, I think to get the full story of that, we have to backtrack a little bit. The first time I'd ever done testing on my bike, the guy who was doing testing told me, if you're a C3, you'll be internationally competitive. If you're a C4, you'll be a fast recreational rider. So, so how do you even go into that? Like, what are you rooting for, right? Yeah, because it's kind of like, well, I like to, I would like to be less impaired, but at the same time, it's good if I'm going to be competitive with more impairment. So we went to, and because I, um, I'm going to have less function if I'm more tired. My, I'm also what they call spastic. So on the left side of my body just kind of starts shaking sometimes, which is super neat when it's in public. And, um, so I did a decently hard workout before just to try to mimic a little bit what the stress of race day and the stress of a 40 kilometer race is going to do to my body sure. to be able to um, get the most accurate um, classification we can. And so in that classification, they look at my strength on either side. They look at my coordination, my balance. Um, and then they also watch you on the bike. So to see how you handle the bike, what sort of modifications you have on your bike. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the end of the day, they came out and they said C4. So I am just broken hearted because all that's going through my mind is if you're a C4, you'll be a fast recreational rider. Sweet. I'm in mm -hmm. Rio de Janeiro and now I'm a fast recreational rider. <laughs> <laughs> so the next day I had the 500 meter time trial on the track, which is essentially a sprint. The best in the world yeah. can do it in about 32 seconds in my class. And let me tell you, I am not a sprinter. I, I used to be, after my injury, that whole highway from my nerve to my muscles is full of potholes, as the physio likes to say. So those fast reaction times are not my strong suit. And I don't know why, but I started with my left foot when all through training I've been starting my bike with my right foot. But on race day, it's a good time to change that, I guess. I've heard that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Try so new I things. Got super spastic, like 30 meters into this race, my whole body is shaking as I'm trying to control this bike with no gears and no brakes on the track. And I ended up last, and it was a really bad race. And I was just like, okay, yep, yeah, well, this is what they said. I'd be a fast recreational rider. This is this sounds pretty good. But I mean, I still had another race to do. I had my pursuit two days later, and the individual pursuit is the event I'd actually been training for. And they knew I wasn't gonna be a sprinter, so we're like, hey. Four minutes, let's see what she can do. So here I am, this fast recreational rider. I got on the bike and we'd kind of been planning, at this point I've done I think three pursuits in my life in training. We'd been planning for about 22 seconds a lap. And about four laps in, about a kilometer in, my coach starts yelling that I'm at 19.8, like two and a half seconds above my pace we'd set out. And then at one point my coach says catcher and I look up and the other girl on, my on the track is like right in front of me. So I kind of dug down and I started to catch her and then I passed her and like, I'd never done that ever in training. I didn't know people passed each other on the track. I didn't know that was a thing, but I did it. <laughs> and I finished off the day. Um, I think got a three second personal best. Uh, when I finished my heat, I was sitting number one. And by the end of the day, I was three seconds off the podium. I and I was like, it. Oh, maybe I'm a little bit more than a fast recreational rider. This is cool. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, okay, so taking that fast recreational thing, did you go into that race thinking like, I'm going to prove them wrong? Or were you going into it thinking, oh, God, they're going to be right? 
or like a little bit of both? So after my classification, I was, again, completely torn, completely heartbroken. I had a really, really good heart-to-heart with my coach. Um, And honestly, when it came to race day, I wasn't even thinking about proving them wrong. I wasn't thinking about this is my destiny. I was thinking about I have a race to ride. Mm -hmm. So kind of I had my morning period, if you will, and then it was over. I was there to race bikes, so I was going to race bikes. Yeah. And I think track really lends itself to it because it, to that kind of feeling, because it's so methodical. Like, like you say, like he's yelling like 19.8. So you're like, oh, yeah, it's 2.2 seconds ahead of my, so like, it's so just cut and dry that I think it makes it easier to be like, okay, I'm just going to focus on that. And I think we, like in the other cycling disciplines or running or any other discipline, you can take that same like methodical thing and kind of take away the emotion from the race and go into that mode. Well, yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why I really like track is because at every single point in the race, I have a very specific thing I'm focusing on. Mm -hmm. It's okay. I need to get my timing right to get out of the gate. Then I need to focus on engaging my hamstrings. Then I need to focus on getting to the corner as fast as humanly possible. Then I need to focus on settling in. Okay, now I need to make sure that I'm riding the line really nice. And there's just all these very concrete things that I can Mm -hmm. focus on. And like you said, it just becomes a series of different processes one after another that eventually lead to hopefully success yeah terribly painful processes like this is not to say track cycling is just about the numbers it's also like the hardest thing ever um so yeah there's that uh oh actually the one thing I wanted to ask about track is I mean you're suddenly on the track which is very new for you do you feel like maybe even your ice hockey like background helped with that because I feel like the circular like being able to skate around a rink is like similar kind of to the track or at least a lot of speed skaters manage to shift to track cycling so connections or how did that that the shape of the track not necessarily I mean hockey's not like speed skating when you're skating circles if you're skating circles playing hockey you're not doing it very well but um (laughs) I think when I first got on the track, one of the first efforts I did was what we call flying 500. So you take a couple laps to get to the very top of the track, you dive down, and you do two laps as fast as possible. And I mean, that is about a 45, or at that point for me, it was about a 45 second of um, training session or training effort. And that's kind of similar to like a shift in hockey. So I think I had at least the metabolic processes for that. And honestly, my first week that I was at track camp, they didn't let me on the track for like three days. I just sat on a trainer for three hours every day while everybody else did the stuff on the track, just learning what it felt like to ride a bike with no gears. Um, sure. And that you can't actually can't stop pedaling because you can't coast. So by the time yeah. they said, Keely, get on the track, I was just ready to go. Hmm. Yeah, track cycling is one of those things that terrifies me. I remember doing a try the track thing. I've like raced it a bit since then, but I did a try the track thing and I had not tightened one of my pedals enough. And when you're at the top of the track and your pedal comes off, (laughs) it's not great. I can, I I don't even want to imagine. It was like the most painful slowdown ever. Luckily, I actually managed to like roll into the field, like with the one leg doing all the work trying to slow myself down. But yeah, since then, I have like such respect for track racers. We're just taking a quick break from today's episode to talk to you about Inside Tracker. 
So you want to take charge of your health and wellness. That's why you're here. You're trying to do all the right things for your body to get more energy, better sleep, and a healthy immune system, and you probably want to improve your performance. And of course, live a healthy, adventurous life for a long time. But it's confusing out there. There's so much information and misinformation, and what works for someone else might not work for you. You want a clear picture of what your body looks like on the inside, a clear measure of whether your diet and exercise choices are helping or hurting, and a clear idea of who and what to trust when it comes to health, wellness, and performance guidance. Founded in 2009, Inside Tracker is the ultra personalized performance system that analyzes data from your blood, DNA, and fitness tracker to help you optimize your body and reach your health and wellness goals. The recommendations that come from the analysis are ultra personalized, and you can choose the ones that are most compatible with your lifestyle. Each recommendation is directly linked to a peer reviewed scientific publication. And Inside Tracker doesn't just show the normal biomarker zones, they show you the optimal biomarker zones and numbers that are best for your body. And now, for a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com/consummate. That is insidetracker.com/consummate. All right. Now, back to the episode. So, okay. All of this, you know, you just listed out all of these races you've done since then, and that alone sounds busy enough. You're, you know, all over the place. There's training and everything. Uh, but during this time, you're also getting a master's and now a PhD. Uh, so talk to me about, first of all, just explain to everyone what your, what your master's is in, what your PhD is in. Like, what is your research focus? Yeah, you know, grad school is a big task. Racing bikes on the international level is a big task. Somehow I decided to do the both of them at the same time. Totally makes Who sense. Who does yeah. that? But um, so my master's and my PhD are both in the field of kinesiology, specifically in sport nutrition and exercise physiology. So my master's, I looked at the effects of dark chocolate on cycling performance in, um, at altitude. So yeah, I had the coolest project I love it so much um, because I know <laughs> I everybody's do like, oh my goodness, what happened? We didn't find any improvements in the time trial, but we did find lower lactate levels in the dark chocolate group. So, I mean, eat your dark chocolate, manage your lactate, chocolate. seems legit. Um, and my PhD just gets a little bit more specialized where I look at nutrition for special populations. Specifically, I look at female athletes, Paralympic athletes, and master's athletes, so older athletes. Um, I did a fair bit of work last summer on how different things related to the COVID-19 pandemic. So I looked at how um, the pandemic affected the training and diet of Paralympic cyclists, how it affected the training and diet of master cyclists, how um, wearing a face mask during exercise impacts your ability to exercise. Um, We just did another review article on that. So again, kind of that broad umbrella of exercise physiology, getting a little bit more specific into sport nutrition. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I want to talk about this this research you were doing with the the masters and the the para athletes with COVID. Um, how so with with all of like your, your research? How did it end up as far as like similarities and differences between the two populations? Just as like a broad scope or start starting point. <laughs> Yeah, so um, the one thing that we noticed is that for both groups, the Paralympic and the Masters athletes, their training didn't change. And um, I mean, that kind of makes sense. It's for a lot of cyclists. We don't necessarily need, we don't need a swimming pool. We don't need a running track. Um, Mm -hmm. So everybody can get outside. They can ride their bikes. 
most of the people we were looking at were relatively well trained. So even if the weather wasn't optimal, they had indoor trainers where they could still train that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so in both populations, the training didn't change. It was pretty standard, pretty, very similar between before and after the declaration of the pandemic. Um, so one of the change differences we did notice is that in our Paralympic group, the diet didn't change either. It was pretty much, again, exact same pre and post. With mm-hmm. our master's group, though, we did see some changes in their dietary intake where um, we'll call them less favorable changes. So just decreases in some micronutrients. I don't remember off the top of my head, but I believe it was like vitamin K was lower. I actually um, have this in omega, front of me. It was, some of those uh, nutrients. Yeah, it was fiber, vitamin A, omega-3 fatty acids, and potassium. Yes, I, and I, then alcohol I, went up. I was going to say, while consuming more alcohol. Yeah, so, and I mean, I think that can be lent, um, lended to the Paralympic athletes we were looking at were elite athletes. They're still training for the Tokyo Games, right, even if it is a year later. Whereas yeah. these Masters athletes are more recreational riders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you're 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 right. Like the elite para athletes would have sort of their routines, their schedules, and everything like that is still in place. They're still like athletes, and the masters cyclists were the ones who tended to have sort of their their lifestyle was kind of upended by the pandemic in in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think you're you're absolutely right. Um, now, ha, do you, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. Do you think they're going to get back on track? Do you think we can get back on track? I I think we definitely can. And that's where I think that research is really important because some of these changes you would necessarily, if you were to look at your own diet, you might, it's hard to quantify what some of these are. So mm-hmm. when we look at the overall view of um, the group I looked at and we're like, okay, well, maybe we do need to focus on getting our fresh fruits and vegetables there. That's where we're going to get a lot of this fiber, a lot of the micronutrients that we started dropping on. Maybe we're just being aware of the amount of alcohol we're consuming. And I think it's worth noting that when I did this data collection, it was mostly in like June, May and June of 2020. So everybody, we're still relatively fresh into this pandemic. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to say whether we did the same study now what it would look like because maybe we've all kind of fallen into a little bit of routine there's less novelty we all know that it's not going to be a two-week lockdown and our lives are going to go back to normal yeah Um, so hopefully people have started to get back more into a quote-unquote normal eating habits and seeing those um, key nutrients coming back into their diet and alcohol intake going down yeah, I, I will say, yeah, May, June, I think was uh, was the box wine month for most people I knew. It was like, okay, well, we can only go to the grocery store like once every two weeks or something. So we'll just get the box. <laughs> it's probably fine. Yeah. Um, and it's definitely harder to regulate than, uh, than bottles, I will say, from like personal experience here, putting it out there. Uh, and yeah, I think the, the pandemic kind of allowed us to make a lot of like casual, like, oh, yeah, like glass of wine every night of course maybe two of course uh but after a few months you're kind of like oh right should probably make sure i'm on the right track here yeah um and okay what does what does a day in the life for you look like at this point as far as like train like how do you balance the training and the research and all of the and like having a life because you're also like married and you know 
I well, I don't really have a life, so there's that. But um, yeah, I mean, it was kind of nice actually to be home for an extended period of time with COVID. I haven't been home for this long in a very, very long time. I haven't left the country since March of 2020. Um, and I didn't even leave the province between March of 2020 and August of 2020. It's like, that's unheard of for me. Mm-hmm. But I mean, typically for me right now, my schedule depends on what the weather's like. So in the summer, when it's warm out, I'll usually train in the mornings and then I'll work in the afternoons or I'll work in the more early morning and then I'll train late morning and then I'll work again um, in the afternoon. Right now, I'm, I usually work until about noon, 1230. Um, I'll have lunch, give that a little bit of time to digest, try to get my head from the workspace to the training space head out for a ride or to the trainer, whatever the weather's going to allow for. And I always have these big dreams of going back to work when I get back from training, but I never do. Yeah. Like I'm going to have food and I'm going to sit down because I'm tired. And then I end up like doing a Sudoku or something. And then I'll usually take the dogs for a walk or to the dog park or something in the evening because I've got two shepherd huskies who need lots of exercise. Okay. That's where I'm really looking forward to the warmer weather because then I don't run often, but I'll take the dogs for a run every now and then because it's better for them. I like I can rollerblade with the dogs. I just like rollerblading. So that is that I'm really looking forward to the snow being gone, the weather being warmer, so that I can do these things that aren't riding my bike. Because as much mm-hmm. as I love riding my bike, I also love doing things that aren't riding my bike. That's fair, yeah. Um, and outside outside of riding your bike, do you do any like strength training, mobility stuff? What's what does all of the around the bike stuff look like? Yeah, so I lift weights two to three times a week, depending on where we're at in the season from about October until March. Usually that's a little bit more heavily focused on track riding. So I'm in the gym usually three times a week um, during the summer. So from March until October, we're focused on road riding. So usually in the gym two times a week if we're doing a big volume block I won't be in the gym at all so I'm actually going to Penticton next week to do some volume riding some hill climbing so I won't do any gym stuff for the two weeks while I'm there Um, and then I do mobility work um, just some like general mobility exercises while stretching and foam rolling every night I put Netflix on I stretch for half of it and then I cuddle with my dog for the other half because she's kind of (laughs) needy Our dog is like that too. If the TV's on, he wants to be squarely like snuggled onto your lap. No other option. It's kind of funny because when I'm gone, my husband has to put Netflix on at eight o'clock, even if he's not watching it because the dog's so used to watching TV at eight o'clock and getting yep. snuggled in. Like that's how he wants, yeah, the dog needs the wind down for the yep. evening. <laughs> I know we actually took ours out for a, like an extra walk last night because it was so nice. out. we're like, oh, like, let's go for an after dinner walk. I swear, DW was so angry at us because he was like, this is not my routine. I would like to go home and watch my shows. <laughs> like, man, you don't have shows. You're a dog. Oh, Lexus definitely has shows. Yeah. Like, he sprinted us back to the house to like, jump onto the couch and be like, yeah, now it's our time to chill. Story time. Yeah. So, yeah, he's got his stories. Yeah. <laughs> and... Okay, we kind of touched on the Paralympics, but we did not get into them too much. So you started, your first bike race was 2017, and now you're, you know, eyeing the Olympics. I mean, mentally, how do you, how do you even deal with that? Like, 
Olympics, also PhD, all of these things happening at once. How do you compartmentalize all of these huge life accomplishments that are happening in this very short span of time? I'm very good at wearing different hats, it would appear. I'm not very good at wearing my hats simultaneously, and I think my coaches would like it if I could wear my kinesiologist hat a little bit when I'm biking or when I'm wearing my athlete hat, but I'm still learning about how to do that. Um, I mean, it's kind of crazy. Like you said, I literally entered my first race four years ago. So, I mean, if you would have put me on that line being like, oh, by the way, you're going to be at the next Olympics, I would have been like, please, let's calm down here. But, I mean, it went, it was kind of a whirlwind. I went from, I think I was on the development team for like five months before I joined the high performance team. And a year after I joined up the high performance team, I had a world championships podium. So again, it's been kind of crazy, but at the same time, I mean, it's kind of fantastic. It's, I'm very lucky in that what I do at school really relates directly to what I do for biking. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I'll just like nerd out with my dietitian. I think half of all of our meetings are just like us being nerds about different research that's come out or what research I'm doing or looking at doing. Um, but I like being busy. I'm kind of one of those people who has a really hard time sitting down. Mm-hmm. So I like when I have a four-hour plane ride to Toronto to go to track camp. I've got articles to read. I've got stuff I can do. And I mean, I've never been in grad school without also racing bikes. So I don't even know what it's like to not have these two things coexist. Mm -hmm. I remember Skyping in for like stats class, trying to do stats assignments on SPSS in a virtual lab environment and like Skyping in for a three hour class because I had a 10 hour layover in Brazil. You were doing virtual learning before it was cool. I really was. So again, I've never actually known anything different mm-hmm. than to um, manage these two things. But I'm also very lucky in that both on the academic side and on the biking side, I have a very supportive team. So if I say I need to get off the track five minutes early so I can get ready and give this presentation, I'm going to run upstairs and give this article presentation for class coaches work around it if I Mm -hmm. say I can't be in class today or I need to zoom in professors are super okay with it and so just in that way I'm I'm very fortunate in that Mm -hmm. everybody is on my side I'm not constantly trying to coordinate coaches and supervisors and students and teachers I just kind of do my thing and everything else falls into place I'm also very lucky that we have a lot of really great people in our lab who can while I'm gone racing, they can do some of the testing if I just coordinated. And yeah, I mean, a lot of the work I do, I can do from anywhere. So, right. I think it's actually funny when you said that, though. I think a lot of people sort of assume that no one is going to be in their corner and they're like afraid to ask their boss for like a slightly longer lunch hour to do their run and then like they'd stay a little later or something like that. Um, but I think a lot of the time, people in our lives are actually a lot more supportive than we maybe give them credit for. We just haven't actually like told them what it is that we need. So I feel like that's, that's something that everyone can do is sort of talk to the people in your life and see how they can actually be on your team. Oh, totally. Because I mean, like taking that example, I'm sure your boss is way going to rather you be able to get a run in on your lunch break, be a more productive, a more happy human being. And then stay for an extra 10, 15 minutes. Or maybe they'll just be like, no, don't worry about it. Like, you're good. You're going to make up that productivity. 
anyways with having gotten some fresh air. So I think exactly. it's just a matter of not being scared to ask for what you need. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and okay, you said something with the hats um, about how you, you kind of wish your kinesiologist self would talk to your cyclist self a little more. So if kinesiologist Keely could uh, be, be like lecturing cyclist Keely, what, uh, what would she be uh, lecturing her about? It's usually going to be about my on-bike nutrition. Um, I'm getting way better at it that, but I'm definitely still on the low end of what we should be. And I'm like, oh, I have a two and a half hour ride. I don't, I don't need to bring anything. Yes, Keely, you're doing more than 90 minutes. If you want to maintain a good power output, you do need to have something with you. Yep. It's funny because yep. I almost like it's a physical transformation when I go back and forth between the two. <laughs> Mm-hmm. No, it's funny. I mean, I literally wrote a book on cycling nutrition, but it wasn't until I was like coaching camps with junior athletes that I started eating enough on the bike. And it was only because I was like, oh, right. I'm getting paid to be here as a coach. I can't bonk. Like if I bonk, we're in trouble as like yeah. a camp. <laughs> and it was like this game changing thing for me. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's my thing too, or like getting enough carbohydrates and I'm like, Oh no, this is good. I'm at like three and a half grams of carbohydrate per kilo. I'm like, Oh, this is totally fine. And then I put on my other hat and I'm like, no, no, let's try to hit at least five to six. <laughs> I'm trying to picture like a training, a, a training log where you're like logging your stuff as the cyclist, but then like going back and like <laughs> lecturing yourself. as the kinesiologist. It's why we should never coach ourselves. I feel like. Yeah. That's it's kind of, I have, you know, I have, a diet, I have two dietitians, I have physiologists, I've got coaches, and it's like, could I do all these things? Quite possibly, but I really shouldn't do it for myself. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like you said, even about talking to your dietitian and just kind of like ending up chatting and talking about the latest research, it's still a chance that you're actually like talking through your nutrition, which is, I think, a thing that most of us don't take the time to actually like sit down and do. Yeah. So I feel like that alone is is worth the time, even if even if you feel like you know what the dietitian is going to say, right? It's still worth like let's let's maybe sit down and discuss this because it turns out I'm not drinking any water ever. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, I'm having a glass coffee at four. No wonder I'm not sleeping very well. Weird, huh? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and okay, you also mentioned reading nerdy research on flights. Uh, is there anything particularly cool and exciting in, in the research right now that you're like stoked on? The thing I've been finding is there's a lot of review articles coming out right now. Yeah. Because I think nobody can do research. And so people have like, time, oh, yeah. Then, They're like, mm, I, I just want to read 300 articles. Cool. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I'm... I'm being going to be a little bit egotistical here. I'm a little bit stoked on this review article we just did on face masks and how they affect exercise because we did a small randomized control trial in October, November, and it got a fair amount of media. So I had a lot of experts in the comment section telling me about how I did my research wrong and how it doesn't apply to them. So a big thing was like, oh, our people were like average age is like 35 and there was 14 people. So like, oh, it's such a small sample size. This doesn't account for, you know, people with asthma or whatever. So now we've done this. Um, also, welcome where, to research in general. Like that's, that's sort of how it works. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, everybody in the comment section is an expert. So we've done this sure. review article where I think in total it had like 1,500 research participants. There was three or four articles on people specifically with like heart disease and lung disease. So we can be like, no, 
our original research fit this narrative. My mm-hmm. favorite was one of the people in the comment section was like, I bet these researchers don't even exercise. Excuse me. Uh, pardon me. Excuse me while I go train for the Paralympic Games. And the other mm-hmm. guy, one of our um, collaborators, he's like big in the CrossFit community. The lead PI. I don't think he has a car. He bikes or cross-country skis everywhere. <laughs> It's, it is interesting. I, I used to kind of have the same view of researchers. And then the more the more of them that I speak with, the more I'm like, oh, right. Most people get into research on exercise and stuff because they love exercise. they like to exercise. <laughs> they want access to the lab with all the testing. Yeah. So they do all their research about the exercise. You are 100% right. That's, that's what it's all about. Let's be real here. <laughs> Um, okay. And then the other thing I wanted to actually talk about is just, um, you know, for, for young girls getting into cycling, what, what advice would you give them? Because I mean, you you know, we have the consummate athlete, but then I have shred girls. So I'm always looking for strong female role models to give, give great advice on, you know, how to get past the intimidation factor. And I mean, good Lord, like the track and worlds in like a year, uh, there, there's no bigger intimidation factor than that. So What's your advice? I mean, cycling is kind of a hard one because at least where I'm from in Saskatoon, a lot of the bike groups are predominantly retired old men, which is great. It's great to see them out there and they're all so nice. Mm-hmm. But as a young girl, that's not the kind of crew you want to hang out with. So at Sass Cycling, we've been working really hard to bring in some young girls and we've got a couple um, of us women who are trying to lead the group so that they've got a strong female role model. And I mean, when I got into it, I was lucky because I did have a, like, I had teammates who were, like, had medaled at the London Olympics and won the first cycling, uh, paracycling medal for Canada. And just everybody on the team from the very first day I was there, they were talking to me like I was one of them. Mm-hmm. And to me, I'm like, you guys are these, like, deities up on a pedestal in my mind, but you're treating me like I'm just as good as you. And that was really cool. But awesome. I mean, like, I think young girls if you can find other girls who want to ride great um but really just go out there and do it cycling is kind of nice where you can do it by yourself or you can do it with a group and sometimes doing sometimes with a group and sometimes by yourself is the best way to do it I find it's really important if I've had a rough day I throw on like a podcast or I'll just go with nothing and just kind of be with myself for a couple hours and get rid of all of the stress that's in my life so I mean if you can just find something in cycling whether for me it was the brute physicality of it that I love to chase after chase after that and just again ride your bike I think everybody can find something to push towards whether that's going faster farther and just kind of enjoying the process because that's really what it comes down to you're not Mm -hmm. gonna become excellent if you don't like doing it right so yeah yeah. Oh, and the other thing, as far as cycling, getting into cycling, guys, I mean, okay, so you started, I think, first of all, you started with this Junker steel bike, which is actually a story that I love. And even since I talked to you the first time, I've told so many people about that. Because I think it, it speaks to the fact that, like, you know, we, we tend to kind of, as we're in the cycling sphere, we tend to kind of be like, oh, you need to have XYZ equipment to get going. And you know, otherwise, it's just like, it's not... You're not like a real cyclist if you don't have all these things. But honestly, you can get started with the 
heaviest bike. And in a lot of ways, it's actually a benefit, right? Like, like you say, you probably were putting out way more power getting used to like lugging 25 pounds up a hill. Oh yeah. Like my, again, my first bike was this big steel frame thing. The skin suit I got from as a hand-me-down, it was like three sizes too big flapping in the wind. When I went out to this camp in Quebec, I still had the visor on my helmet and my coach looked or he's my coach now but he looked at me he was like give me your helmet so I gave it to him he just ripped it off I'd known him all of like six hours and he just rips off this thing off my helmet so I mean I think we can be pretentious as cyclists but that doesn't mean we have to be Mm -hmm. and you don't need all of the fancy things like I think I had my $200 Canadian tire bike I put $10 cages to keep my feet on the pedals yep and I would do 20-25k and that was great and four years later, Paralympics. So and four years later, I think I own more in bikes than I do in cars. Yeah, that's that's a very easy uh, uh, teeter-totter to come down <laughs> on that side on, for sure. Uh, and actually, I like that you mentioned the skin suit that was like several sizes too big. I always tell people when I first started, I spent the first two years of riding in like the Sophie gym shorts that you would like fold over. Yeah. Like, because no one told me that bike shorts were a thing. So did not know. Yeah, very good I, change when I figured it out. <laughs> I wore capris, and I remember the first time I went to like a learn to road ride clinic. My bike had a mm-hmm. kickstand on it, and that was everybody's favorite thing to make fun of. And it's like, hey, it does the trick. Yeah, right. I, mean, I think as cyclists, that's what we need to avoid, right? Because that's how you turn people away from the sport instead of being like, oh yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. And then once you start to really enjoy the sport, and you have the means to do so you upgrade and then you're like oh my god the sport is so much more fun than I thought it was because now I have to put in so much less effort exactly exactly oh amazing okay before we wrap up how can people follow you find what you're excited about what you're working on what how racing is going etc um best place is probably instagram I think my handle is keelyshaw10 and then sure I do a little bit on now. twitter which I think it's keelyshaw14 but Instagram's where I share a lot of my research. I share a lot of my racing adventures, a lot of pictures of dogs and socks, if we're being perfectly honest. So I'm a, I, you will never see me in boring socks. I have a sock thing. Okay, what's your favorite pair? I'm a fan of the Blue Q socks because they've got a re- lot of really like sassy sayings on them. So I've got a pair that I won my world silver medal in. It says Duchess of Sassy Town. Nice. I also have a pair. I don't remember who the brand is, but they say pretty okay at bikes. Those are those oh, are my socks right now. Nice, nice. Awesome. Keely, thank you so much for doing this. It was so fun getting to chat with you. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that we were able to connect and have this conversation, just kind of geek out for a little bit. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you enjoyed this or any of our past episodes, do us a solid and leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And check out our book, Becoming a Consummate Athlete, over at consummateathlete.com. Questions or comments? Find us over on Instagram, at consummateathlete, and we will see you next week.